The Greek word from which we get Pentecost means 50th. 50th. The Feast of Pentecost was originally celebrated in Israel 50 days after the waving of the first fruits, which was just after the Passover. So there was Passover, then there was the Feast of the First Fruits. You'll remember that the risen Jesus is called by Paul the first fruits, the first fruits of the harvest. Thus, our Lord's Passover, his suffering, leads to the resurrection, the first fruits, and 50 days later, to the Pentecostal gift of the Spirit. And our text this morning, from Acts chapter 2, we see that the day of Pentecost has arrived. The 120 or so disciples are all together in one place. We've looked at them. And here the Spirit comes. It's brief, actually, surprisingly so. And it's followed by a rather long sermon from Peter, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. But today we'll make two points, the Spirit and the nations. They're there on the outline in your bulletin, the Spirit and the nations. So... Now, before we get to this event of Pentecost itself, I want to back up, pause, and review just a minute. John the Baptist, you'll recall, had promised, he had actually prophesied, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And not only this, John says, he will administer the final judgment. You might remember John the Baptist's words. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we might ask, like, Why did the final judgment, the coming fire, why did it not happen right then as soon as Jesus was baptized at the hands of John? I mean, you could very plausibly read John the Baptist's words to expect the final judgment to happen right there. He says it. There's one coming after me. He's already got his winnowing fork in his hand. He is ready. But we know what intervenes, right? What intervenes is the life and the ministry and the death and the suffering and the passion and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what intervenes between John's promise of this coming fire. He's baptized, Jesus is, in the Spirit sent from heaven. He receives the Spirit into our human nature and is filled with the Spirit and anointed with the Spirit for his messianic task of obedience and suffering for the sake of his people. Right? It turns out that he bears the fire of the judgment that he's going to administer for the sake of his people. Right? Jesus is baptized in the Spirit, and then he's baptized in the blood and the fire of Calvary, the judgment there. And so now that one pours out the Spirit and fire. 
I'm trying to make explicit this connection between John the Baptist and Pentecost, which is often overlooked. But remember, this is behind our Lord's words to the apostles in the very beginning of the book of Acts. In chapter 1, in the first few verses of the book of Acts, Jesus says this. uh, Luke says, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me. And then what does Jesus tell His disciples there? This, by the way, is in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. So it's like a heading over the book. Jesus says, For John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, we might add, not many days from now. Jesus himself connects what he's about to do at Pentecost with John's promises. This is the day then, Pentecost, of the church being baptized by the baptized one. And in verse 2 of our text, Luke tells us, of the Pentecostal descent of the spirit, of this startling phenomenon. A sound, it's loud, a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind filled the whole house. This is an outward sign of the spirit who is the wind or the breath of God. And the same spirit which comes like wind also comes like fire in verse 3. And the likeness of the wind and the fire together are a theophany, that is a God appearance, an unveiling of God. It's important to remember this about Pentecost. The spirit is not a power or a force or an impersonal thing. The spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity, God himself coming down in wind, as life-giving power, and in fire, in blazing holiness and purity. It's the descent of God himself from heaven. But you'll notice in the text, the tongues of fire, we're told, rested on each of them. It's a beautiful picture. Fire is dangerous. It doesn't rest on you. Here, this divine fire rests. This is not a consuming fire. Right? For the church of Jesus Christ, the fire of judgment has been borne by the one who sends the same fiery spirit. The judgment which John said he would administer, he has borne. And thus he sends that fire from heaven and the fire rests on us, signifying that this is the spirit Not of burning judgment, but of purification. This is the spirit that does not consume you, but transfigures you, and renews you, and refines you. And as a result of this descent, they begin to speak in other tongues, the text says, as the spirit enables them. So, tongues here means languages. As the context makes perfectly clear, right, this is not unintelligible speech. Right, this is not private or devotional speech. These are languages. We'll see this in a minute. And this gift of the Spirit from heaven is the long-promised 
end time gift of the spirit. It was foretold by the prophets. You can find it in Joel. You can find it in Jeremiah. You can find it in Ezekiel. This is what Jesus means when he says, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the father, which you heard from me. And Lord willing, we'll see it in Peter's speech next week. So that's the spirit. I'm just going to introduce the spirit. Obviously, in the book of Acts, we'll have a lot more to say about the Holy Spirit as the series unfolds. But the second thing I want us to look at this morning is the nations. The nations. Now, we learn something remarkable here. Remember, this is one of the three feasts at which Jews were required to appear in Jerusalem. And we're told in the text that God-fearing Jews... The text actually says, devout men from every nation under heaven were gathered there. Now, think of this. The Jews had been scattered in the Assyrian invasion, which destroyed the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, in the 8th century B.C., 800 years before this text. Right, The remaining southern kingdom then, In the 6th century B.C., they're carried off to Babylon. And some of them returned from the Babylonian exile, but many did not. They were assimilated as citizens throughout the known world. And these Jews, who didn't have a prophet and didn't have a revelation from God for 400 years, are here called devout men. They had remained by the grace of God, faithful to Yahweh in exile, in the far-flung corners of the world, the very ends of the earth, for centuries. Centuries. So the judgments of God, his scattering of his people in exile, they were, I think a sensitive reader would pick this up here, right? they were in God's tender mercies, They were a preliminary way of bringing the faith of Israel to the whole world. God is using these judgments. So this international multitude of Jews is in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And they hear the, the chaos, the ruckus, and they come together and they're confused. And it would be, why are they confused? Well, it says in verse 6 that everyone heard them speak in his own language. They hear Jews from Palestine speaking in all the languages of the Roman world. So they know, right, this this can't be normal. And they say in verse 7, aren't all, all these speaking, aren't they Galileans? Meaning they know these are not Jews of the diaspora. These are not Jews scattered abroad. These are not what we call Hellenistic Jews. These are local Jews. Galileans who had a reputation for being a little rough, a little uncultured, with their own distinct accent. Right? You remember Peter in the courtyard? In in his denials of Jesus? I think it's right before the third denial. They say to him, You're one of them too. Your accent gives you away. Even the Jews in Judea and around Jerusalem thought the Jews from Galilee were like 
you know, country bumpkins. These were the redneck Jews. They had a weird accent. They have a rough, rough and ready accent. And, and so these other Jews from all over the world are like, these are Galileans, and they're, they're speaking in our language. How is it that we hear them in our language? Again, notice, tongues here are real human languages. The disciples spoke, and the Jews from abroad heard their native tongue. So it's not a miracle of hearing. It's a miracle of speech. It's a miracle of speech. And this is why there's no gift of interpretation of tongues needed here. No interpreters needed. The speech is intelligible in itself. It would be akin to you immediately getting the gift of speaking fluent Russian. Assuming you didn't have that already. And a Russian hearer being amazed that you're speaking it to them. That's the miracle here. Now, if you look at this text, it's it's tempting to skip or to skim lightly over verses 9 through 11. It's like a genealogy in the Old Testament, right? You might not read it. You might flip ahead of it. But we don't want to do that here because in verses 9 through 11, you get a list of the nations of origin of all the devout Jews that are gathered in Jerusalem. And the presence of this list, believe it or not, is crucial to the story. So this list moves roughly from east to west, from you know, north of Iran, like the Caspian Sea, over westward. So look at verse 9. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. Right, these are various people groups, roughly from modern-day Iran. And then next, there's residents of Mesopotamia, roughly modern-day Iraq. In these lands, as we said, Jews had lived in exile for centuries. And next, Judea is mentioned, and that probably means the full extent of the land's boundaries under Solomon, and thus it would include Syria. And this would include, obviously, all the local Jews still living in Israel. Right, then Luke lists Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. All terms for what in New Testament times was called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Phrygia and Pamphylia are listed next. Those are more provinces in Asia Minor. Right, he, covers, he covers the provinces in Asia Minor from north to south and then from east to west. And then the list moves south to North Africa. Egypt is in the list. Again, remember, we're talking about Jews from all these countries, right? Egypt, where there was a thriving Jewish community in Alexandria, for example. And then Libya. And then north and further west into Europe. When did Europe first hear the gospel? Here. Right? Rome, visitors from Rome, which we know had tens of thousands of Jews at this time in the first century. They had both Jews, the text says, and converts, proselytes. So there's a few ethnic Gentiles present, but they've converted to Judaism. And then, and then the list moves back east across the Mediterranean, Cretans from the Mediterranean island of Crete, and finally, Arabs. 
from the Arabian Peninsula. What a remarkable list this is. It includes, to use the language of Genesis, it includes descendants of Ham and Shem and Japheth. Africans, Semites, and Europeans. These are the nations that were previously described as every nation under heaven. Jews gathered as representatives of the nations. Now, they were not literally, of course, from every nation, but they were from virtually all the known parts of the Roman world. They represent the whole world. They are the whole world, theologically speaking. You might ask, well, what's the significance of this? Well, it's at least twofold. First, it tells us Pentecost means the Spirit is going to be given to all the nations. It's going to break out of all provincial and national boundaries. It's going to be an international phenomenon. Pentecost means we live in the age of the ascended Son's triumph. And that's the age of the profuse outpouring of the Spirit. And thus, it is the age of the ingathering of the nations. To the Jew first here, assembled here, but also to the Greek Right? The gospel going to the Gentiles is anticipated by the sheer fact that you have Hellenistic Jews from the whole world assembled in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Remember, strictly speaking, there are no Gentiles in the scene. And yet the scene is global and cosmic and international, Catholic and international. So the gift of the Spirit is the gift of the ascended Christ reaping or beginning to reap the harvest of the nations. That's surely one of the significant things to see in the list. But secondly, there's this. This list of nations means that Pentecost is the undoing, or the beginning of the undoing anyway, of Babel. Right? We heard the reading of the story of Babel from Genesis 11 this morning. Well, before that, in Genesis 10, you know what they have? They have a table of nations. That precedes the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And here in this text, we have our own table of nations, which I just outlined for you in verses 9 through 11. We have a table of nations upon which the Spirit falls. And so Luke is intentionally pointing this contrast out. At Babel, the nations acted in pride. And here the disciples wait in humility for our Lord's promise. At Babel, they sought to ascend from heaven. At Pentecost, the Spirit comes down as gift. We don't have to ascend to heaven. The Spirit will come get us and lift us up. At Babel, the nations were scattered. At Pentecost, the nations are gathered. And at Babel, a divine judgment fell, confusing the languages of the earth. At Pentecost, through the gift of tongues, the earth language divisions are overcome. So the gift of Pentecost is of enormous redemptive historical value. Pentecost means God, through the ascended Jesus, is undoing his scattering judgments. He's using them as a means to unify the nations in the one new man, the new humanity of the church. Here, then, 
the Spirit of God is creating a radical new unity in Jesus Christ. And this is a unity that God is forging through the Spirit that will transcend. Now, it won't eliminate, but it will transcend and it will unify all of the racial, national, linguistic divisions of a divided humanity. I mean, think about that. This is what it means to be Catholic with a small c. The church is the first Catholic, the first multinational, the first multicultural, the first globalist, to use a controverted word, institution. We were globalists long before globalists were globalists. Because Pentecost is an international, global, multi-ethnic phenomenon. So part of the implications of that is that a Pentecostal people should not be a provincial, narrow-minded, unicultural kind of people. Right? The borders are open to the church. The doors are always open. We welcome the other, the stranger in Christ through the Spirit. We ought to ask ourselves, do we believe that the Holy Spirit is going to transcend and unify all racial, national, linguistic divisions of the divided human race? This is the beginning of that process. The beginning of the descent of the cosmic temple, which will come down out of heaven from God at the end of the age and will transfigure the cosmos itself into a temple flooded with the glory of God. The gift of the Spirit is the inauguration or the beginning or the foretaste of that glory. This should not be surprising, right? The gift of the Spirit is the gift of God's own life. The the Spirit is creating a temple, creating you into a temple, into a house, a dwelling place for God. And so if we live then in Pentecost time, in one sense it's always Pentecost season in the church, if we live in Pentecost time, and we do, right, then we have to be a, a people of spirit-wrought hope. And among other things, we have to be people with wide-angle views of things. We cannot allow our current struggles or our current cultural convulsions or our social decay or our political travails, real as they may be, We cannot allow them to be definitive. And here's why. Because our time is not defined. That's where you get the word definitive from. Our time is not defined decisively by any of these things. Right? There's no news story you can hear which decisively defines the time you are living in. If you think that, your vision is too small. Our time is defined by the risen and ascended Christ and the gift of the Spirit. That's the time. Right? When someone asks you what time is it, we mean it's the last times, it's the end days. Christ has been raised, he's exalted, he's triumphed, and he sent the Spirit. And these things are to be the main facts on the landscape of our consciousness. This is the time. So, all of these people, they hear the speech of the disciples in their own native tongues. And there might be a question that you might ask here, which would be something like this. Well, what are they talking about? 
What are they saying in these strange tongues? Well, you know what they're saying? It's in verse 11. They are declaring the wonders of God. They are declaring the mighty works of God. I sometimes think this is completely lost when people retell the Pentecost story. It's like, yeah, we got this. The Spirit came down. Weird stuff happened. And now we have power for the Great Commission. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up. What did they say? They declared the wonders of God. So the, the Spirit comes down, and the speech with the, which the Spirit creates immediately orders us back to God. Right? If this is vertical speech. They're declaring God's wonders, which would almost certainly focus on the person and the works of Jesus Christ, especially his crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation and ascension into the heavenly sanctuary, and his sending of this gift. He's the consummation of the mighty works of God, and that's what their tongues are full of. They're declaring the mighty works or the wonders of God. And, of course, the populace is amazed and perplexed, and they're in wonder. They, some of them are mocking, saying they've had too much wine. They have had wine, but it's the wine, the abundant wine of the new covenants, the wine of the Spirit. So that's the nations. So I want to, in closing, I want to reiterate a couple things. One is, Pentecost is unrepeatable. Like, it's a unique once-for-all event. Among many reasons for this, one is it fulfills the prophecy of John the Baptist. And it empowers the apostles, who are apostles, right? They're unique, to do their foundational task as witness-bearers, eyewitness-bearers to the resurrection. So, again... Pentecost is as unrepeatable as Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. To expect Pentecost to occur again would be akin to expecting the ascension to occur again. We must make this distinction. But it doesn't mean, doesn't mean that we don't participate richly in its glory. The wind and the fire and the tongues are unique. But the power and the joy and the boldness and the life and the praise and the worship and the witness, they are not unique. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, Paul says no one can do that apart from the Holy Spirit. Right? That means you have partaken of the Holy Spirit who came at Pentecost. That same spirit has impacted and invaded your life. We have all drunk, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, of one spirit. We've all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we're all commanded in Ephesians 5 to continually seek to be filled with the spirit because we are in need. And we seek to be filled, of course, not not for our own amusement. We're filled to speak. Right? To Bear prophetic witness to declare the wonders or the mighty works of God, to rehearse them. If you want to see some examples of what it's like to like rehearse the wonders of God, then you can go read like Psalm 104 or Psalm 105 or Psalm 136 or Psalm 78. And you'll see these long psalms where the psalmist just rehearses the mighty works of God in creation, in providence, in redemption. That's what the Spirit enables us to do, to declare these mighty works. Notice again, 
the Spirit created worshipers first, and then the worshipers were overheard by the nations. That's really key to get. The Holy Spirit wants to make you a declarer of the wonders of God, a worshiper. You cannot be a witness without being a worshiper first. So we must be worshipers. We must be declarers of God's wonders because he has been wonderful toward us in Jesus Christ. And we're waiting, as Peter will say a little bit later in this text. We're waiting for this great and glorious day of the Lord. And we bear witness in this time. Right? And what do we say? Peter condenses the witness that we bear just a little later. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message of the gospel. We bear it to all peoples. And for that calling, that prophetic calling, you, all of us, have been gifted with the Spirit. We are Pentecostals in that sense, in the fullest sense of the term. We don't believe in a repeat of Pentecost. Right? We believe that tongues were public languages spoken by this assembled people. There's some differences, but in the sense of believing in the fullness of the need for the power of the Spirit... We don't yield to anyone on this. You may not know this, but John Calvin was known historically as the theologian of the Holy Spirit because he just placed so much emphasis on the need for the Spirit to live and walk out the Christian life. Apart from the Spirit, apart from this heavenly fire, this divine breathing, Christianity is a pretty powerless and drab affair. Right? It just becomes like another ideology, something you're grinding out. A long list of rules, like a hive of activity without any divine power or light or joy. It's like a desert without water. And that's how Christianity can feel to us sometimes. And that's a sign that we need to stop and plead for water to come down from heaven. The Spirit has come. That means there's a new day, there's going to be a renewed people, and there's the beginnings of a new world. And the gift of the Spirit means that there is a river of life into which you have been baptized, and to which you must repair for renewal. It's the same river of life that flows from the throne room of God in the new creation in the book of Revelation. That water flowing from the throne, that's the Spirit descending, cascading down into the church perpetually. You want to be drinking it in. Be filled with the Spirit is an imperative from Paul. So Pentecost then means that the scene in our text, this international gathering, remember, still at this point, we only have the Jewish root of the church, the Jewish foundation. This international gathering ends with this glorious scene from Revelation 7, where the fullness of redeemed Israel and a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and all peoples and all languages. They're standing before the the Lamb and before the throne, and they're clothed in white, and they have palm branches, and they're crying out with a loud voice. They're declaring the wonders of God, and they're saying salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the end game of the Pentecostal gift of the Spirit. The Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, even American flesh, 
So you join then the Catholic international global throng in the overcoming of Babel, in the overcoming of division and fragmentation. Receive the Spirit and be a declarer of the wonders of God in Jesus Christ, the ascended giver of the Spirit. Amen.